Welcome to Libya Matters. In today's episode, we discuss women in conflict. We look at obstacles to women participating in peace and state building and start to think about how to overcome them. Today's guest is Leila Laudat of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. She has immense experience on women in conflict and special expertise in Libya. Enjoy. Hi, Marwa. How are you? Good. Tuesday. Almost halfway through the week. I can sense from your voice <laughs> that you're feeling mischievous because we're we're doing the W word today. I think so. That's, it's always exciting talking about women. Women in Libya. <laughs> women in Libya. So what is, um, as a woman from Libya, what do you think we should be thinking about on this episode? Ah, uh, you're trying to put me on the spot, Inham. Uh, definitely security. Security, peace. Women, peace, and security. <laughs> wow, you sound like a politician, Marwa. <laughs> that very much sounds like you're on brand with that. Um, actually, one of the things I wanted to talk about that I am, you know, to preempt the comments our podcast will get, let's deal with a little bit of what the likely, um, maybe I'll take it back a little bit. So we were talking earlier about this experience I had quite early on doing this work where I, you know, I was, we, LFJL was hosting uh, an event with some very senior um, figures in, in Libya talking about the constitutional process and, and building and state building. And we always make sure that there's 50% women, 50% men in our events, and our organization is disproportionately um, female, which is great. Um, but one evening, sort of on the second or third night of this workshop, we were all having a chat and one participant was very, very vocal about how women just can't be part of this work because they are too emotional, they're not logical, they don't have the experience, they have other priorities, so every possible cliche you could imagine under the sun. And what struck me on that in that evening is two things, is none of us spoke up as women. The only person who talked back to him or tried to sort of stop him was another man who highlighted that actually this whole organization is led by a woman and this event is being hosted by women, so what are you talking about? And he then said something that I found personally offensive, but also I'm still five years on still thinking about. And he said, no, 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 Ilham doesn't count as a woman. She's an exception. Mm. And I think for me that kind of exceptionalizing women conveniently when they can do something is problematic. Now, I'm not saying that I'm in any way an exception or a special and God... If you knew me for longer than three days, you'd have a very different view, and I'm sure the people around this table do. But I think it was, it kind of was something that women around that conversation also bought into. Mm -hmm. And that I found really difficult, that they sort of found this idea that there is a different, you know, there's a different type of woman who can be participating and not any woman. And what that type of woman even is, I have no idea. And so it's something that I've felt very unsavory, and I didn't really stand up for myself, and I'm really angry as well, that I didn't say, hold on a second, I am a woman and being a woman is at the core of my leadership and I take a very feminist approach and and I didn't I just let him get away with it and I think I always wonder why and I still I still don't know I know you're gonna ask me why ask me why I I, I don't know I think Mm. I I wonder whether sometimes and I'm sure we'll we'll pick this up with our guests in a minute but maybe sometimes as women we also ignore men to get to get on with things and as a result the narrative doesn't change because there there's one male narrative and then there's a female narrative and the two don't meet and so you kind of live in your own mm-hmm. um biases mm-hmm. 
or you just feel like this is not worth my energy but then that means you don't ever dispel that work so it's i i have no idea and it still annoys me i the one thing i did do is not invite him to any more workshops and then i felt my power there as a <laughs> as a woman came through but i think that i mean I, I, I have a whole list of experiences working inside of Libya in, you know, um, in different contexts where earning my seat at the table took a lot more for that to for them to finally see me as an equal and not, you know, I've, I've gone to on missions or gone places where they'll, talk, you know, I'm I'm heading a mission and, and whoever it is that we're talking to from the officials will talk to either uh, any one of my male colleagues, irrespective of, you know, as long as it's not speaking to me directly. And so we've, I think we've all kind of um, have been faced with that. But I think that by continuing to be present and continuing to um, to assert that presence as women, uh, because in my experience, again inside of Libya, me as a woman being inside comes with all so in a whole um, area of, of of layers of of prejudgments and you need to work extra hard to either become a non-woman <laughs> as in as in your case <laughs> or to then eventually be accepted as an equal where they can now speak to you by looking at you um but i think that by can i i guess what's most important is that by continuing to be present we are slowly breaking the narrative little by little um i mean needless to say uh it's not easy but um i think that we all take it in different you know we approach it in different ways so i'm really looking forward to um us widening this conversation with our guests today i already feel more feminist like i want to talk about the taking down the patriarchy and and the like but i need to step step back uh, restrain myself a little bit, but with us today is Leila Aradat, who's from the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, um, a personal, a personal hero of mine um, for her relentless um, feminism, but also for her nuanced understanding of 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 these conflicts and the role women play or don't play in these conflicts. So, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and let's open this up. So. Do you have an anecdote of being told you're not a woman? Oh, I have far too many anecdotes to start listing. And I think every woman does have. I agree with you, Merwa. All the women who choose to be in the public sphere will have a long list of anecdotes where they have been put in a corner where their options are either to, just like the options you had, you, your option is either to be strict in response and respond and take this uh, individually or to ignore it, um, or to look at the sisters and try to move this within the movement. And the options are not easy. Neither of them is easy. I think patriarchy feeds on uh, making public spaces hostile for women. We need to be conscious. We need to be uncomfortable. They feed on our lack of comfort and our lack of just being able to 
say the right thing most of the time, say the wrong thing sometime, and still survive and get away with what men get away with. And that's going to be very, that's very difficult for women. So this is the entire patriarchal conspiracy, and we all have our uh, ways to deal with it. The good news is there is more women in the public spaces where we can um, support each other. The other good thing is now it's becoming an understanding that fighting this hideous exclusion and attack and hostility is not a woman's issue alone. Any man in the public space should be offended if he goes into a, a peace process, a negotiation room, a panel, or just a chat that decides the uh, future of many people when there is no women, or if it any incredibly homoge homogenous room should be uh, at least questionable by people, and that's the duty of both men and women. Taking that that sort of initial observation um, and trying to put it within the context of of Libya, because we we always think about you know why why are women not in the public sphere? Why are they not part of the political process? Because when we look at women, there are women who are, who are clearly capable, who are clearly connected enough, established enough, can have access. So is the question that women are self-selecting out or are they being left out? I think self-selecting out is a small part of the problem. Because it's so hostile, it becomes very difficult for women to want to be part of that. Why would I want to be in a um, to be a political representative when I know for a fact that everything I do is going to be scrutinized in a, to a level that no man has ever had to deal with? Uh, we see in for women politicians, for example, that their public their personal lives becomes um, becomes everyone's business, they get attacked for personal choices, the kind of attacks against them. So men get attacked for a set of things, let's say, and women get attacked for all of these plus their gender. And it always has a sexualized, uh, offensive, abusive nature to it. And it's unfortunately accepted by mainstream media. It's now become easier in social media. So this space is so hostile it's very understandable for a lot of women to choose not to commit this sometimes uh, social or personal uh, suicide uh, going into that space. Um, and the other reason is the system, both representative democracy, but also the other systems around it, are made and feed on excluding women. They're made they're based on certain stereotypes and gender identities and gender functions that uh, says that defines power in a way that women don't have. Um, and even when we try to, unfortunately, when we try to change the system for a very long time, uh, political movements and, uh, and even social movements use the same tools to change the system. So they base their activism on the, so in the, on the same hierarchy of power. So no real change happens. So exactly what you said, Merwa, when, um, when women need to survive in a place that's very misogynistic, they have the option of um, acting like men. So we see women who are just being equally misogynistic to men who are being equally exclusive. Uh, they're not including women. They're 
they're just being part of this hostile environment because they want to survive, or it can become a very lonely place. And this is why we, this is the argument behind representation and participation, that we need a critical mass so we can feel comfortable changing this space and actually making the system different so women can bring all the values they bring into the public spaces. Taking that kind of hostile environment and the kind of, the sort of masculinization of the space, are we asking, I don't know, are we asking even more of women to ask them to work on peace and security, which is a very security first approach that is built around, um, you know, a military approach to things. So is it, I mean, I know in my heart what the answer is, but is it then us saying, well, that's not the natural space for them to start their political careers? Or um, are we saying that those places are problematic because they're so masculine? Does, does my question even make sense? It does. Yes, that's an ongoing uh, discussion in both feminist spaces and also in the security spaces, if we want to call them so. Uh, I think there needs to be a big spectrum, diverse spectrum of activism and work to counter these problems that you've just listed. So yes, more women need to be involved, but also the system, the security system itself needs to be dismantled and changed. So for example, one of our research, we... Um, about militarized security. So there's always a militarized aspect of security that we assume is the right thing. But actually, if you go to women in a conflict area, when a man sees a tank, he feels a little bit safer. When a woman sees a tank, she feels far less safe. When he, when he realized that uh, there's a proliferation of arms that he has access to, both by his gender function and the expectations and stereotype, um, while women don't have the same access. So the same, the, the small arm or the uh, tank or the militarized aspect of security altogether is made to enhance the security of men uh, in certain, uh, within certain hierarchies as well. So we need first to dismantle the aspect of security to be everyone's security. We need to look at non-militarized security, at human security, and at uh, what makes women feel safe. Um, and then, within the current systems, yes, there needs to be women. I'm definitely not an advocate of more women in the military. I'm advocate of less military. Because wherever there is a military and an armed conflict, women will be definitely impacted negatively. So we need less arms and less militaries, less militias, less non-state actors for security to happen rather than more of them with women involved. Because the system is so established, it's going to be very diffic difficult to dismantle um, from within, in my opinion. If we kind of zoom this in on, on Libya as um and, and how particular this is and how it translates into, uh, because I think that in, in, in Libya, we see the kind of withdrawal of women from the various levels, from political, from the public space, from active participation, uh, be it politically, activists, uh, journalists, anyone outspoken, they have been silenced because of the security situation, it seems. And those that may have thought 
that they wanted to engage have now self-censored. And so they've left a, a space that is completely absent of, of, uh, to a large extent. And I guess what I don't understand is, so for individual act, uh, activists, for, uh, for human rights defenders, anyone who may kind of present themselves as an opposing uh, voice to, to the situation. But we, at the same time, do not see women at high level being brought in to take a seat at the table for the peace uh, discussions, for any political discussions. There were women at the LPA but not at the significant um, at the significant roles. The fact that what we came out what came out of the LPA, the Libyan Political Agreement, um, is a GNC, a Presidential Council, and the what was it, the High Council. Um, there are no women across the board. Is problematic and 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 I think it goes back to Elham's question in I mean in in the sense of why are there no women is it that they have removed themselves from that space um or there's the, you know there's not enough engagement from key but, but uh, if I might add one thing because it's, it's not just that there are no women but there isn't even the tokenistic women and that's the bit I find really particularly disturbing in the Libyan scene because the Libyan negotiations have been led by the international community. So even within that sort of external factor, there was no need really to even have a token woman be in one of the councils, which have, you know, we're talking about tens of members, not single figure members in their various permutations. So even the tokenistic use of women has been dispelled within Libya. And that's the bit I find I don't know whether that's in a way transparent and therefore helpful to deal with the conversation, or is it just that we're so far gone that we don't even have to have a couple of ministers or whatever that are women? But even, I mean, the fact that the that the international community, uh, the UN-led, you know, initiative of all of this themselves, who are supposed to be, you know, the um, the uphold these these principles have felt no reason to to bring in like what you said uh, and have the token very good observation and a great example so the libyan political process is very representative of what's wrong with um traditional peace processes they are done uh, by national and international actors their priorities are different from those of the people People start mattering and start taking a seat at the table when they have enough power. And power is only translated into money or arms or territory. So when they have one of these three, they get themselves a seat on the table. And these are not the tools women try to have. Uh, so naturally, within these traditional peace processes, they don't get naturally selected to be part of it. Then comes the international, um, the international uh, uh, actors who talk the talk, who go sign, uh, vote for 
UN Security Council resolutions on women participation, uh, nationally speak about uh, women's rights, always Western European uh, and American states, the global West always have something to say about uh, needing more women, that those poor women in the global South need saving and they need, and yeah, these men down in the Middle East and North Africa really need to get women at the table. Our experience in Libya has been very telling because yes, you look at all these international processes and there's no women at all. You, you cannot see any women. On the grassroots level, there's a huge number of phenomenal women and that's not in the way you were speaking, Ilham, um, that you know, they're exceptions. No, women can't do it, but you're an exception. All of them come from various backgrounds, uh, have various um, access to whatever source of uh, power in their in their circumstances, and all of them have been active actors. They are correct. They know what their communities want. They are very brave, and uh, they're available to feed into the process. The problem is that there's no link between the grassroots and the track one. Uh, processes and here we bring an organization like ours bring the international community to say you cannot say uh, there's we haven't pushed for any woman because there's no Libyan woman because there is uh, you cannot say that their presence is not going to make a difference because it will look at the example you just brought uh, their absence meant that the process is entirely gender blind all the bodies that uh, came up out of it are entirely um, lacking in women and gender blind and will not solve the the problems of the community. They'll solve the problems of the men at that table. Uh, so, and the women are available. So what's missing? This link is missing. And this is what I think is a mix of political will and the withdrawal you spoke about women choosing not to be part of this because and also very small things like one of the main things that are um, hindering women access is like literally documentation needing a mahram sometimes uh, freedom of movement um, the fact that uh, literally they don't have physical access to uh, these places uh, to the places where such meetings are happening um, and there's no political will nobody really wants them at that table except them and their communities so that's what needs to be changed i think what you said is really on point and we definitely see that in libya but my i guess my nervousness with that is we're also accepting this kind of that women can't be at the highest or or accepting that they're doing good work at the grassroots level. And, and that also feeds into this narrative as well of women being the kind of community-based people, but they don't really have necessarily the will, availability, vision, et cetera, to look at national solutions. And I think it's not undermining the grassroots efforts by any means, but I think it us accepting almost that reality and, and applauding over, I don't know how to say it, but over acknowledging the track two element feeds into actually what some of the problems are right of saying well women are very good at the community stuff because that's really about soft diplomacy and emotions they can't really handle the big stuff and that's what I want to try and break down because I do think women can handle the big stuff and the fact that you know we it's one of those things we keep hearing over and over again you know that's this is like the military is a male space it's a understanding uh 
you know, de-escalation or understanding disarmament or understanding peace building, it's a bit too tricky for women. I totally agree with you. And I only brought the example of grassroots to say that even in a space that is not, you know, it's not their natural space. They are there. They excel. They have fantastic analysis. Um, and, you know, patriarchy is not only in the, it's not only impacting women in the conflict space. It's also how we look at it and how we talk about it. Academia does not acknowledge women's, the knowledge production of women as knowledge. They acknowledge it as stories and as experiences. The media doesn't acknowledge it. Uh, uh, and obviously diplom diplomacy and the international community doesn't acknowledge it. So the co combination of all of these is creating serious barriers for women. But we have so many examples from Libya about women who have fantastic analysis, the ability to, to bring the community's voice and also their own individual voices and the voices of not only women but men in the country uh, with different interests from those at the table to the highest levels and more most importantly they have the solutions the men with guns who have been sat around the table for too long did not bring solutions women brought solutions they're not being listened to and it's not because they're not comfortable being in that in those spaces it's just because the burdens on them have become impossible i'll give you a very recent example the most recent round of uh, talks in palermo up until 24 hours before it, so the Italian government is sponsoring this, the international community is overjoyed about it, uh, various Libyan actors are very interested, uh, no women, zero women. And then we and others started this movement that somebody needs to explain that why there's no women at all, not between the invitees, not between the negotiating parties, where are the women, which we know exists and we know have solutions. And obviously most states start saying, oh no, but it's we didn't set the agendas, we didn't send the invitee list. Um, and 24 hours before, they realized we're gonna embarrass them too much. And by we, I mean a very uh, large group of Libyan activists, uh, women activists around the world and human rights organizations, it was gonna be a ridiculous um, conference. So yeah, they started mobilizing. And when you mobilize 24 hours before, you get people with visas, you get people who can jump on a plane in 24 hours. So it's not great, but we ended up with a significant representation of women politicians in Palermo with a civil society support group who went there and advised them and the process. Uh, so you need a huge amount of, uh, they're ready, they're able to do it. And the moment the blockage against them has been removed, they went and done a fantastic job. And you see it in the outcome of the conference. Uh, so many things would have never made it to that outcome document, made it because these particular women uh, were there. And that is a very good example to be used in any other conference or negotiation on Libya. Um, but we need to then fight the big barrier of political will, fight the smaller barriers of actually physically being able to make it there and protect them when they're back and protect their opinions um, when they're uh, 
when they're bringing sincere opinions from their communities and from their political experiences. It's it's funny you mentioned the Palermo um, conference because I was uninvited from that. They uninvited you. I was told my invitation was on its way, and then my invitation didn't come. And when I followed up, I was told unofficially um, that they they that my views on migration etc were not going to be helpful to the to the process. Um, so th there was an actual sort of. Yeah, so I, 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 yeah, I find that quite, um, and that wasn't from the Libyan side, that was very much from one of the Western sponsors. Um, so we can, yeah, we can pick that up in one of our migration episodes, I'm sure. But I think there is, you know, there's an accidental exclusion of women, but there's also a deliberate exclusion of women. And I think it's worth talking about that. But I also think there is this, um, elite that's developing and I think actually more so in the women's movement in Libya than the general human rights movement um, of women who are like you say have visas or can travel easily being prioritized um, and I and my one of my big concerns for for the women's organizations in Libya is that there is definitely this split between a few organizations who have that access but also use the lingo very freely mm -hmm that then alienates people on the ground who are doing more of the grassroots work. So, you know, this, let's talk about 1325, or let's talk about, you know, counter-violence narratives. And I think that kind of language, we all use it. And I think we're as guilty in this table as anyone else of using it so freely and comfortably to the alienation of others, um, or, or, you know, mentioning CEDAW as an acronym all the time. Um, I think all those things are really difficult. So. I wondered whether we could just have a moment to think about whether we're helping the cause or not by creating this elite that uses its own language, that has its like its own language kind of in terms of jargon, but also its ability to speak other languages, and that's why they get invited. And then the people, the wider women's movement, and how we bridge that gap. And I know that we're as guilty. I mean, this is not hands up. We are guilty of benefiting from that structure. Moment to just also, I mean, before we get into this, it's but it's about the elite. Um, one of the things that I've noticed and I really have issue with, and you may not agree, is that one of the blockage that we see in, in the participation of women is their access to visas and their ability to travel without a muhram or without a male companion. And, and I've seen this across the board at all levels, uh, we can't support that. And so when it comes to Western, um, you know, uh, organized uh, events or donors, or it could be on, on whatever it is that is being organized, uh, women in Libya, a lot of them uh, do need that, uh, that, someone to travel with them the fact that they that they're not supported they become excluded from the conversation from the table and that is one of the reasons why we see an elite group of women who can participate because they don't have all of these restrictions placed upon them um which i think is feeding into the exclusion of women 
we don't i i i know there there's a whole other conversation to be had on the the principle i mean the idea itself but in the time i think in libya today we choose our battles and this is something i mean women who need to participate we're not going to change a whole kind of uh cultural and traditional structure as it is and but we do want to see more and more women participating in not, not even in in conversations on on a political level but also for training simple things like training simple things like being able to benefit from um civil society organizations where they are then excluded and i and i find that profoundly unfair because of of social restrictions we and and traditions we kind of add to that by excluding them let's discuss the adding to that i agree with you entirely that there is colonialism and racism both in the aid system and the way international organizations are run and the way you know this whole relationship has so many flaws totally agree when was the last time a man was asked to explain his privileges that allow him to be representative never usually men don't get it's it m- men don't get faced with this kind of an uh, an attack sometimes uh, that oh but you are you're elitist i don't think you should be at this table women get faced with that all the time um the second thing is when anybody brings this claim which is rightful in in its essence they need to give me a solution we yes we're all complicit we don't want to um exclude people from being at the table but if the table is only allowing this option and and if these people are the only ones who bringing the issues of women to the table if somebody wants to say that's not fair then they need to give me a solution of that makes sure that it's not a a table with no women or no women's voices or no women's concerns. So I'm very happy with the with the argument and we need to solve it on the long run and I can give you a few examples of how Libyan women have tried to counter that. Uh but uh, it's really important that when this argument is presented we look at who's presenting it and how much they are involved in the system. So I'll have to disagree with you Ilham. I don't think we're I think we don't have enough um ways to counter it. Uh I think those who are complicit are those who are setting the rules. The UN can make one phone call and get anyone a visa. And so does a lot of the states who uh choose the the easy option. Italy could get somebody a visa in half an hour if they want to. But they throw it on the civil society and international organizations say okay well find us somebody who has a visa and speaks english because we don't want to spend money on translation so let's just point this at the ones who are creating the system and creating the circumstances that make this the case and differentiate it from those who get along with it because it's the only option available while trying to change it so i blame an organization that goes to you know goes to do consultancies in the in in Libya and don't even bother getting arabic speakers there's so many there's so many professional knowledgeable arabic speaking experts 
you really don't need um, to alienate everyone by uh, not providing translation. Um, we, for example, we're such a small organization, but we refuse to have any event that's not translated out of principle. Even if people speak English, they should have the option to speak in their mother tongue because this is about them and about what they want. Uh, we don't uh, hire any experts in to, f to support our partners in the region if they don't understand the region, have worked in it, and speak Arabic. Um, and not once we were out of options, we needed to get. Uh, so there's so small, and if we can do it with our resources, anyone can. There's small things that could um, that could and should be done to counter this uh, bigger narrative, exclusionary narrative. Uh, but until that happens, uh, I, I'm I'm afraid that some of the fantastic women who take it upon themselves and. Let's not forget they're volunteers. All of no one, none of the people I know get paid for the political representation they do or or the civil society work that they do. Um, yes, they ca they do have passports, but they still have to go from Libya to Tunis um, to get a visa, and then again from Libya to Tunis to wherever they're going. So it's such a, and then they have to defend themselves all the time because they're the elite and they're not representative. While in our experience, they're among the very few who are actually trying to bring the voices of, of those who cannot be at the table. So I think they would be the last who need to answer for this before everyone well, else. I'm actually taking this as an opportunity to self-reflect more on on us than you know. I would never profess to to kind of criticize uh, people who are you know who are doing this work in another organization, but I can certainly talk about us and you know how how you know we get we get sometimes at the table and I feel, you know, we try our hardest to bring colleagues along with us and we're not always successful for all the reasons that you've listed. But, you know, it is the constant, it's, it's, I guess it's the comfort of knowing you're doing the good fight and therefore sometimes, not always, um, going, okay, well, I'll go and I'll do a really good job and being a little bit complacent in trying to bring people with you. And I think that's the bit that I think we should always self-reflect on and not fall into complacency and not complicit not being complicit, but being complacent. And I think that for me is really something that as civil society, we we owe it to our colleagues in civil society to keep asking that question. So, you know, I'll give an example. So at LFJL, we have this issue always of uh, having a mahram or a chaperone for women. And it is it is a quite a difficult decision to make as someone who runs an NGO to say, do I spend the money on a mahram or do I spend the money on another participant who will benefit? And, you know, and, and then, then the pressure is so much that is this woman really worth it to pay for two people for her? And that can't be the calculation you do, right? Because you don't ask that question of every other participant who can come without a, a chaperone. But what we've done, for example, is we now have, a, you know, where we can in every single project we have is a line item just for chaperones that we use when we need it. But we end up paying from core because we have this rule that we have, you know, equal representation of men and women at our workshops, but it is it is something that we should think about and answer for is to say, also with limited resources, how you use your resources and whether you fall into the trap of saying, well, it's so expensive to bring two people for one person's voice, then let's just bring someone else who is easier to bring because they don't need a mahram because they, 
And I think that's the that's a trap we can easily fall into. And I don't want to become complacent and I don't want to forgive myself. Maybe others are happy to forgive us because we're fighting the good fight, but I don't want to do that. I want to be saying, am I choosing the easier option? Not because it's less good and not because they won't be able to speak, but I think we need more voices and different voices. Uh, not to say that they are better than others, but to say that let's not become also equally lazy in a way as civil society by bringing the people that will cost us the less and will be the easiest to get there. Um, than someone from somewhere slightly more remote who will require companionship, not least because of the journey they take through the country. Yeah. So it's not even, I'm not even concerned about the international travel. Actually, I would want a woman traveling from the south of Libya to, the, to Tripoli to get a flight, to be accompanied for safety. Uh, so I think that's the kind of, that's the difficult decision that you end up, if you're too practical, you lose out on. If you are expected to find solutions for systematic problems as an individual or as an organization, for example, these same questions get asked all the time about uh, accommodating people with spe special needs. If an organization needs to do the right thing as an individual, when the system is not allowing them, when donors are not looking at this, and so on and so forth, it becomes a burden. Although it is the right thing, it should be done. No questions asked. Same for accommodating um, uh, childcare and so on. We cannot leave this to be an individual initiative by heads of organizations or by organizations or individuals. It needs to be. This is. It, it needs to be something common. It needs to be an initiative, a common initiative between uh, organizations altogether. And the burden needs to be shared also with those who are part of the problem. Donors need to answer. Why do we have to make such massive? Uh, uh, decisions like you know covering chaperones from from core or so on and so forth and um, and the other thing i wanted to say is the one way to look at at being complacent and the self-reflect it's amazing how those who are doing the most amazing work are the only ones who self-reflect so i'm not surprised you're you're doing this but look at uh, what your organization is doing you guys um Yes, you might make use of some of the spaces that's available to you because, because of the system. But you use these spaces to do the most, um, to the, I'd say the most revolutionary thing on the human rights sphere related to Libya now, looking at the work you do on immigration, the work you do on accountability. So I would have, you know, I would have supported this, um, self-reflection if you only take and many organizations do they only do the complacent thing and they just create safety in the spaces that's made available to them sometimes tokenistically but you've actually done this and you went fighting for immigrate the least um popular thing to do from your space as an organization and you went and done it so i think that's a great example of like diversifying the fight we, we use that in the, in, in the feminist movement all the time, that we go and uh, lobby politicians and lobby states and work at the Human Rights Council at the same time. And, and we go do direct action and support strikes and go to the streets and make a movement. And I think the combination of all of them is what makes a difference. That brings me to um, an, in, sort of a, an interesting campaign that's currently quite popular in Libya and it's it's around underage marriage um, and there's been a, a really strong campaign because there was a story that came out a few weeks ago about a a girl that was you know married off at 14 and has ended up being has ended up dead after suffering quite significant domestic um, violence and 
that's been one of the most successful campaigns we've seen in, in recent years and across the country. And I, it's, you know, it is, it's very powerful and it's, it's, it obviously raises a really problematic issue with underage violence and also the link of that underage, sorry, marriage, which increased post-revolution. Um, and I think that's sort of interesting to reflect on, but what it also highlighted to me is how the the movement again is is in these cliched areas of domestic violence and women women's rights in a very narrow sense and we don't see that same kind of mobilization around political participation or peace building um and whether we're feet you know again we're um pigeonholing women too much or is it because this work is is the safer work um, so I, I, maybe we can be, because we've been, you know, we've discussed some really interesting kind of conceptual ideas, but maybe to look at it from a really practical perspective, what happens to women in a conflict country where their role as activists, because of all this very legitimate reasons we gave, becomes on the traditionally social issues of being a woman and not really being galvanized around the political transformation or the transitional issues yeah that's uh, we saw this happening in a lot of conflict countries where women who would have made so much different working on theory working on uh you know uh, criticizing the system working on politics how end up doing um, humanitarian work doing the like direct uh, first response work because the need is so high and because they um, feel the obligation and the moral obligation to do so. And I think um, the way we've dealt with this in Libya and in other countries is by trying to first acknowledge that there's different functions for the feminist movement and second that there's different actors for women's rights. We cannot leave women's rights to women alone. It's a st such a massive problem everybody should it's a human rights issue and everybody who believes in human rights should take part in their in the fight um, and uh, nurturing the feminist movement will help with uh, pushing forward for the feminist thinking and for solving the bigger problems so the first reaction is yes people end up going to respond to the direct need the third thing that helped is trying to bring the feminist and the woman's perspective into the aid process so they don't feel they need to do it themselves. So we see that women go and respond in, for example, refugee camps or in um, areas that are particularly troubled and there's a huge humanitarian need because they feel that the response is not enough. Uh, so they go and do it themselves. If we manage to, after a while, especially most conflicts are now protracted and long term. So if we manage to bring the value, the added value that they bring uh, to the thinking of humanitarian organizations and of uh, refugee support organizations and of whoever is taking the place of the state in this particular uh, circumstances, if we bring their thinking to them, uh, then they don't have to do it themselves. It's not an easy process at all, but it has been working. And Libya is a very good example where women um, in uh, in areas with high uh, concentration of international uh, of internally displaced people or in refugee hosting communities and so on, they first felt they had to do it themselves, and then they helped organizing within the community. So 
a lot of agents within the community can bring the values that they have been bringing when they've done it themselves. But it takes time. Could I ask, I mean, we touched on this, um, I think, before we um, before the show today, which is uh, the report um, that was published, the issues that women face in, in, the, in the current context in terms of, of movement. And I just wanted you, if you could take a moment to take it out of the IDP situation, because it was very heavily uh, focused on IDP, and I think that it, it transfers largely across the board. And so if you could um, just kind of, yeah, do that translation. Absolutely, and I acknowledge it uh, focuses on IDP, and that's not that's mainly research limitation. We work on very, very little resources. Uh, sometimes we don't have access. Luckily, now we have far more access inside because our partners do a lot of the consultations and the first-hand research themselves. So, um, But yes, it's very linked. So the kind of difficulties that women face and the insecurities that they face are very, very similar. Increased militarization impact women. Um, it always impacts them negatively. Uh, the common notion that women feel safer when men hold arms proved drunk in Libya and in areas in conflict. Uh, the, mom- the, prolifer- the proliferation of small arms in the household increases the chances of women dying 500%. So it increases the chances of domestic violence turning into femicide 500%. Women are scared when there's arms in the house, even if it happened that those usually men who own them are allies at this point of time, because you never know. Um, the failure of the rule of law impacts women differently and gravely, because uh, especially when it comes with proliferation of arms, men can create structures of power that give them and their allies at that point of time some protection. Women don't enjoy that. Uh, So access to law and access to justice would be their safe haven, and that entirely collapsed in Libya and in many conflict countries. Um, The analysis of the root causes of the conflict are very important in the way we analyze how to solve it. You cannot solve the problem using the same tools that created it, and that's particularly relevant in Libya. So uh, authoritarian techniques, discrimination, uh, lack of inclusion have contributed to creating this conflict. And now people have the idea that they can just ignore all of them and continue and find a solution that works for everyone. And last thing is when it comes to pe- when it comes to peace, one that is relevant to everyone, including women and civilians and, and, and everyone in the community, is not the secession of hostilities. It's actually the presence of peace, where people can feel that conflicting parties cannot dictate their life, that there is some rule of law and democratic institutions that can protect them, and that they are all equal and equally protected by the law. Um, so that needs to be kept in mind as the peace process develops. And unfortunately, at the moment, it doesn't. And what you've been told, Ilham, in that uh, panel, Libyan women get told that every day. Luckily, it didn't stop them. Uh, the amount of hostility, unfortunately, not only from 
Libyan politicians, also from international politicians, from international organizations whose job is to bring peace to the country, is unbelievable. The volume and the how bad and how blunt they can be about, you know, we're building peace, we'll get to women later. So they get told that every time. Luckily, that hasn't stopped them. And in both in different uh, political structures and political entities, there's fantastic women who we have noticed that they're more likely to communicate and coordinate across their political um, alignments. they're a little bit more likely to do it because they understand that the system is equally bad to them, despite them uh, being part of that, this political body or that. So there's a lot to be built on, and that applies both to IDPs and to people inside Libya. No, I I just um, wanted to kind of pick up on a little bit on the conversation we were having earlier, before, again, before we started recording, which I thought was very interesting in terms of how the dynamics of the way women engage um, or the means by which women are silenced um, uh, differ from, from ge- even geographically. So looking at how um, in, in the East, uh, how that kind of you know translated and then how it translates in the West. Because I think that it is important to acknowledge that that kind of struggle is with different players, and so, um, and so your approach to it will differ um, from one side to the other. What's also interesting about that is it's the reactions are different, right? So it's the what we've seen in. I mean, to be very simplistic about it, what we've seen in the East is a very systematic shutdown of spaces for civil society and women more so. So we've had decrees passed and. Um, you know, on travel or women traveling without chaperones, we've had uh, requirements for people to register certain activities before they do them, a very authoritarian approach and very police state approach. And then on the West, what we've seen is, is far more this kind of cloud of doom approach where you're ju- it's just this sort of permu- this kind of permanent sense of intimidation, but not defined by a single document or a single system or a single approach. And I think the more I think about it, the way people react to that is obviously very different because you can get good mobilization around a decree that you want to have repealed or you can get. And so the it feels that there is a more systematic resistance happening. But I think that undersells the really difficult efforts that are happening on the West of trying to find pockets of opportunity in this kind of just uncertain other, you know, that, that you're dealing with. And what that has to the psyche of people trying to do the work at the civil society in general, but more specifically women, I find that really, um, really fascinating and something we need to think about when we approach projects as well, I think, because it it does bring different kinds of activists as well and solutions when you're discussing wider problems that it's not really, a na- some of them are not national approaches. Uh, needs to be a bit more a bit more tweaked when um looking not only at the political but also demobilization and uh, disarmament i think that it plays very differently i mean needless to say that women are not a part of that conversation uh right now either but it be again like you said in ham it differs from um from one side to the other and and when it comes to um a non-defined entity that have but that has equally created this this cloud of fear and um then it becomes a lot more difficult um because you're always 
you know, on, on edge. You don't know where they'll come up from. So now, um, as we're sort of approaching the last bit of this episode, I'm going to um, play our little, a little game that we've slowly devising, which is, um, as, as we're, what we're trying to do with this podcast is obviously change the narrative a bit on Libya, is we're going to throw a statement at you of what we hear about <laughs> the women in conflict situation in Libya and want you to a quick dispel, not don't give it credit by analyzing it, but just what your your instinct response to it would be. Mm. I'm so bad at this. <laughs> so let's, yes, um, hit me. It, it, yeah, let's try. Um, women are not financially independent enough and therefore they're not empowered to take part politically. Uh, political representation is needed particularly so economic rights are achieved. Women are not interested in politics. We can't find any women to engage, even to fill quotas. You should meet some Libyan women. I don't. I haven't met one Libyan woman who hasn't, who was not interested in politics, or who didn't have an informed opinion on what's happening in the country. So I'm yet to meet some of these. Women's role really is a, is to help prevent prevent future terrorists. So they should be at home raising their children. The entire methodology of prevent in the, <laughs> in the UK it hasn't worked, has it? Maybe we should try other uh, ways where women can prevent. Uh, terrorism. Can I say something quick about preventing terrorism? Because I find it really fascinating. So some of our partners, uh, usually, you know how there's this international trend about combating violent extremism, and everybody wants to fund it, everybody wants women to go raise children who are not terrorists, and so on. And one thing that just set my mind straight about it is something that one of our partners said, and they and she said, we've been combating violent extremism long before European actors gave it a name. We've been working on education, working on disarmament, uh, working on civil cohesion. Uh, we've been combating, that, uh, combating it and have controlled it very, very long before they realized that it's going to become a problem. And I could not agree more. If there's anything that somebody can learn from the other is all of those thousands of policy people who are setting policies about combating violent extremism need to go learn from um, mainly women and communities who've been saving their communities from extremism all kinds of extremism for so long before it became a problem that interests Europe and um, and need a solution and then they became actors in it Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help us get discovered and keep growing. If you would like to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please let us know on our Facebook page, Libya Matters, or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. This episode was hosted by Ilham Saudi and myself, Marwa Mohammed. Produced by Tarek Miri. The people who put it all together are Linda Patumi, Elham Saudi, and myself, Marwa Mohammed, along with our interns, Marianne Souze and Ahmed Madi. Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. Thank you for listening to Libya Matters. Tune in next week for a new episode.